Furthermore, sanctification includes a growing resemblance to the likeness of Christ. How beautifully and explicitly has the Holy Ghost unfolded this in His Word. This was the exhortation of our dear Lord, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And throughout the writings of His apostles, the same truth is exhibited, whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans 8.29 Speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 4.15 Here is the glorious pattern of a child of God. Sanctification is a conformity to the image and the example of Christ. The more a believer is growing like Jesus the more he is growing in holiness. And on the contrary, the less resemblance there is to Christ in his principles, in the habit of his mind, in his spirit, temper, daily walk, in every action, and in every look, the less he is advancing in the great work of holiness. Oh, how many who profess his dear name and who are expecting to be with him forever never pause to consider what resemblance they bear to him now. Were they to deal faithfully with conscience in the much-neglected duty of self-examination? Were they to bring themselves to this great standard, how far below it would they be found to have come? How much in their principles, in their governing motives, in their temper, spirit, and daily conduct, how much in their walk in the world, in their deportment in the church, and in their more concealed conduct in their families, would be discovered that was unlike Christ. How much that was from beneath, how little that was from above. How much of the image of the earthy, how little of the image of the heavenly. But look at the image of our dear Lord, how lowly, how holy it is. Look at his poverty of spirit, lowliness of heart, humility of deportment, tenderness, gentleness, forgiveness of injuries, self-denial, prayerfulness, zeal for his Father's glory, yearnings for the salvation of men, oh, to be like Jesus, to grow up into him in all things. This is to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. This is to realize the will of God, even our sanctification. Let it not then be forgotten that an advancing believer is one growing in a resemblance and conformity to the image and example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must include, though, in general terms, as involved in the growing sanctification of the believer, an increasingly tender conscience, a soft and gentle walk, deepening views of sin, looking at it more directly in the light of the cross, mourning over, confessing, hating and crucifying sin there. Nor must we omit a more complete investure of the Christian with the graces of the Spirit, the active graces, faith, love, zeal, self-denial, the passive graces, meekness, long-suffering, gentleness, peace. There are some and not a few cases in which all of these features distinguish a believer advancing in sanctification. Having thus briefly considered the nature of sanctification, we now proceed to the main design of this chapter, which was to show the agency of the Holy Spirit in its production. The work of sanctification is preeminently the product of the Spirit. He is the great sanctifier of the soul. We have shown that the implantation of the germ of holiness in regeneration is of the Spirit. 
For let it ever be borne in mind that a renewed soul has within it the incorruptible seed of holiness. Although its growth in many instances may be slow and scarcely perceptible, although during a long period of his journey the believer may be the subject of strong corruptions and clinging infirmities, which, in a degree, act like frosts upon the tender shoot, checking its advance to maturity, yet the seed is there. Indwelling sin cannot destroy it, the frosts cannot kill it, it is incorruptible, and therefore cannot be corrupted. In process of time, under the tender and faithful culture of the eternal spirit, it shall deepen and expand its roots, and put forth its branches and its boughs, and then shall appear the fruit, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. It will vary in its degree of fruitfulness among the saints, in some thirty, some sixty, sixty, some an hundredfold, but all in all it will be of the same nature and the product of the same spirit. It has been the constant effort of Satan to divert men from the great point we are now considering. In two ways has the devil proved successful. First, in setting them upon the work of mortification of sin before regeneration, and second, in setting them upon the same work after conversion in their own strength. With regard to the first, we have shown at some length that sanctification is not the work of an unbeliever, and that although it is solemnly true that without holiness no man shall see the Lord, yet the attainment of holiness is an utter impossibility so long as the heart remains a stranger to the regenerating operations of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and faith are the first necessities in order of time for an unconverted man. With regard to the second effort of Satan to deceive the soul, it is equally ruinous to all true mortification of sin. No child of God can accomplish this mighty work in his own strength. Here lies the secret to be assured of all our failure and disappointment in the work forgetting that he who would prove victorious in this warfare must first learn the lesson of his own weakness and insufficiency, and thus schooled must go forth in the strength that is in Christ Jesus, and in the power of his might, taking the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Forgetting this important truth, we march to the overthrow of our giant corruptions and our own fancied wisdom and power, and the result always has been, and with the same means ever will be, our complete failure. Oh, when shall we learn that we are nothing, that we have no might, and that our feeblest enemy will triumph if his overthrow be attempted in our own insufficiency? The Holy Spirit is the efficient cause of all holiness in the believer. If we look into the prophecy of Ezekiel, we find clear intimations of the promise of the Spirit to this effect. There God unfolds what may be regarded as the foundation of all sanctification, the removal of the stony heart and the implanting of a new spirit. Ezekiel 11.19 I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. Ezekiel 36.26 A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. Let us see the doctrine as more clearly unfolded in the writings of the apostles. Romans 8, 9. Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. 1 Peter 1.2 Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. We are far from excluding the Father and the Son from any part in this great work. We believe they are deeply interested in it, as the divine word shows in Jude 1, them that are sanctified by God the Father. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is the special and immediate agent to whom the work of sanctifying the believer is assigned. Let us now attempt to show in what way he sanctifies the believer. First by leading to a deeper acquaintance with the existence and power of indwelling sin. Perhaps the first impression of the reader is, how can this be? How does the breaking up of the deep fountain of inbred sin lead to the quieting of its dark and turbulent waves? But the Holy Spirit works in a way contrary to the dictates of our poor reason, in a way often that we never should have conceived and by methods we should never have selected. This is one method of his operation in subduing our iniquities and in making us partakers of the divine holiness. The knowledge of indwelling sin, its existence and power, is often exceedingly defective at conversion, and this ignorance may continue for years after. We see sin just enough to alarm the conscience, awaken conviction, and take us to the Lord. As a thing against God, we hate it, mourn over it and seek its pardon through the atoning blood. This is followed by a sweet and lively sense of its blotting out and a growing desire after divine conformity. But, oh, the unknown depths of sin. These we have never explored. What infinite wisdom and love are seen in hiding these depths at first from our knowledge. Were the Lord fully to have revealed the hidden evils of the heart at the period when grace was yet in the bud, and faith was feeble, and our views of the Lord Jesus dim, and the new creature yet in its infancy, deep and dark despair must have gathered around the soul. With perhaps just knowledge enough of Christ to go to Him as a Savior, with just faith enough to touch the hem of His garment, the Eternal Spirit first disclosed to us the existence and the guilt of sin, a full disclosure might have shut us up in hopeless despair. As believers, it is sweet to remember the tender love of God in our espousals, to trace the gentleness of His first dealings with us in conversion, and to bear in mind that what He was then, He is at this moment. But trace the work of the Spirit in the after days of our experience. He comes in accordance with the design of the covenant of grace to sanctify, having called and quickened us. He is about to enlarge the kingdom of God within us, to stamp more deeply and bring out more vividly and broadly to the soul the varied lineaments of the divine image. He is about to purify the temple more thoroughly, to take a fresh possession for God, to expel every rival by slow and imperceptible degrees. It may have insinuated itself there. In a word, God is about to sanctify us. And how does he commence the work? 
by leading us into the chamber of imagery, by disclosing the depths of indwelling sin, sin whose existence we had never imagined, he shows to have its principle dwelling in the heart. Iniquity that we had never thought of, he reveals as lurking in secret ambush within Oh, what darkness, what evil, and what baneful principles are found to have existed for so long where we thought all was light, holiness, and rectitude. We start, we shudder, and we shrink away aghast at the discovery. What, says the alarmed soul, does all this evil dwell in me? Have I carried about with me so long these sinful desires? Have I dwelling in me the seeds of such deep and dark depravity? Wonder of wonders is it that the flood has not long since carried me away, that these deep evils have not broken out to the wounding of my peace and to the dishonoring of my God and Savior. Thus made acquainted with his own heart, almost a stranger to him before, the Holy Spirit awakens in his soul an ardent desire for holiness." In view of such a discovery, whither can he fly but to the throne of grace? Thither then he goes, weeping, mourning, confessing, and his prayer is, Lord, subdue these evils of my heart. I am overwhelmed with astonishment. I lie down in shame, and my confusion covereth me. That I should have harbored so long these treacherous foes against thee, thou God of holiness and love, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, the Spirit deepens and strengthens this desire for sanctification. The believer is set upon earnestly seeking holiness of heart. He sees such an iniquity in sin as he never saw before, and seeing it, he hates it. And hating it, he takes it to the spirit of holiness that he might overcome and subdue it. Thus, in leading the believer into a deeper acquaintance with the existence and power of indwelling sin, does the blessed spirit sanctify the soul by making it the occasion of stirring up its desires for holiness. So, do not be cast down at the discovery of the hidden evil of your heart. Sweet is the evidence it affords to the fact that the Holy Spirit is working there. Whatsoever be the sin that is brought to light, pride, deceit, carnality, inordinate affection, evil thoughts, unbelief, impatience, whatever it be, God is revealing it to you, not unnecessarily to wound and grieve you. Oh, no, he is a loving and a gentle spirit. But to beget this desire in your heart, Lord, conform me to thine image. Make me holy as thou art holy. Another process by which the Spirit sanctifies is by deepening and strengthening the divine life in the soul. There is in every believer a spiritual life. This life is from God. He is therefore said to be a partaker of the divine nature. This new and divine life is from its very nature holy, and therefore opposed to the flesh. The flesh and the spirit are ever hostile the one to the other, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. 
Paul, referring to his own experience, corroborates this statement. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Now the advance of the believer in true sanctification is just in proportion to the state of the divine life within him. If it be low and declining, feeble and drooping, then the flesh gains the ascendancy and the root of sin is strengthened. If, on the contrary, the life of God in the soul is deepening and expanding, healthy and vigorous, if the kingdom of God within, which is the new creation, is filling up every avenue of the mind, extending its conquests and bringing every thought and affection into captivity to Christ, then the great work of sanctification is advancing, and the law of the mind is prevailing against the law of sin. There is an idea fatal to all true sanctification of sin, which some believers, especially those who are young and experienced, are prone to entertain, that nothing is to be done in the soul after a man has believed, that the work of conversion having taken place, all is accomplished. So far from this being the case, he has but just entered upon the work of sanctification, just started in the race, just buckled on the armor. The conflict can hardly be said to have begun in conversion, and therefore to rest indolently with the idea that the soul has nothing more to do than to accept Christ as his Savior, that there are no corruptions to subdue, no sinful habits to cut off, no long-existing and deeply embedded sins to mortify, root and branch, and no high and yet higher degrees in holiness to attain? is to form a most contracted view of the Christian life, such a view as, if persisted in, must necessarily prove detrimental, ultimately destructive to the spiritual advance of the believer. The work of sanctification is a great and a daily work. It commences at the very moment of our translation into the kingdom of Christ on earth, and does not cease until the moment of our translation into the kingdom of God in heaven. This notion, so fondly cherished by some, of perfect sinlessness here is as fatal to true sanctification as it is contrary to God's word. They know but little of their own heart who do not know that sin, to borrow the language of John Owen, quote, not only still abides in us, but is still acting, still laboring to bring forth the seeds of the flesh, unquote. They know little who do not know that in their flesh there dwelleth no good thing, that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and will retain its fleshly nature and propensities to the very last. Let us not exult as though we had already attained or were already perfect. Let us not be ignorant of Satan's devices, one of which is to build us up in the belief that in the present life a man may cease from the work of mortification. The Lord keep you from cherishing so erroneous an idea. The work of sanctification is the work of your life. When sin lets us alone, as has been remarked, we may let sin alone. But when is the day indeed, when is the hour that sin does not strive for the mastery, and in which the believer can say that he has completely slain his enemy? He may, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, and if he does, he shall live. But, as the heart is the natural and luxuriant soil of every noxious weed of sin, 
And as another springs up as soon as one is cut down, indeed, as the same root appears again above the surface with new life and vigor, it requires a ceaseless care and vigilance, a perpetual mortification of sin in the body, until we throw off this cumbrous clay and go where sin is known no more. In this way does the Spirit deepen the holiness of the child of God. He strengthens the divine life within him. He invigorates the principle of holiness, waters and revives and expands the seed, infuses new life into his own blessed work, gives a new spring to faith, a new impulse to obedience, enlarges the heart with the love of Christ, and excites such a thirsting for holiness as none but God himself can satisfy. We would not omit to notice the influence of sanctified afflictions, which, through the eternal spirit, are a powerful means of sanctification to the soul. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, said David. That's been the exclamation and the testimony of many of the Lord's covenant and tried people. It is often difficult at the time to justify the wisdom and the goodness of God in his dealings with his saints in this way. David found it so when he saw with envy the prosperity of the wicked. Job found it so when in the hour and the depth of his afflictions he exclaimed, Thou art become cruel to me. With thy strong hand thou opposest thyself against me. Jeremiah found it so when in his affliction he said, He hath hedged me about that I cannot get out. He hath made my chain heavy. And yet, where is the furnace-tried, tempest-tossed believer that has not had to say, In very faithfulness hath he afflicted me? During the pressure of a trial, at the moment when the storm is the heaviest, you may think all these things are against me, but soon you've been led to justify the wisdom and the love and the faithfulness and the tenderness of your covenant God and Father in his dealings, and to sing in sweeter notes than ever, "'Tis my happiness below not to live without the cross, but the Savior's power to know, sanctifying every loss. The furnace is a needed process of sanctification. If not, why has God so ordered the furnace? If not, why is it that so many of His people are chosen in the furnace of affliction? Why do all more or less pass through the furnace? The furnace is needed. The furnace is needed to purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The furnace is needed to consume the dross and the tin which adhere so closely to the precious ore, to burn up the chaff that mingles with the precious grain, to purify your heart, to refine your affections, to chasten your soul, to wean it from a poor, empty world, to draw it from the creature, and to center it in God. Oh, the blessed effects of this sanctified, fiery process. Who can fully unfold them? That must be blessed indeed, which makes sin more exceedingly sinful which weans and draws away from earth, which endears Jesus and his precious blood and righteousness, and which makes the soul a partaker in his holiness. This is the blessed tendency of the sanctified discipline of the covenant. In this way does the Holy Spirit often sanctify you, O child of God. Are you a child of affliction? Ah, how many whose eye falls on this question shall say, 
I am the man that hath seen affliction. So too was your Lord and Master, and so too have been the most holy and eminent of his disciples. Then think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that, when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. This is the path along which all the Lord's covenant people are led, and in this path, thorny though it be, they pluck some of their choicest flowers and find some of their sweetest fruits. I am not addressing myself to those who are strangers to sanctified sorrow, whose voyage so far has been over a smooth and summer sea, whose heart's affections have never been sundered, whose budding hopes have never been blighted, whose spring blossoms have never fallen just when the fruit was beginning to appear, or whose sturdy oaks around which they fondly and closely clung have never been stricken at their side. To such I speak a mystery when I speak of the peculiar and costly blessings of sanctified affliction. It is not so with the experienced child of God, however. The man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath, he is a witness to the truth of what I say. From this mine he will tell you he has dug his richest ore. In this field of affliction he has found his sweetest fruit. The knowledge of God to which he has here attained, his tender, loving, and wise dealings with his people, his glorious character and perfections, his unchangeable love and faithfulness, the knowledge of Christ, his all-sufficiency and fullness, his sympathy and love, the knowledge of himself, his poverty, vileness, and unworthiness. Oh, where and in what other school could these high attainments have been made but in the low valley of humiliation and beneath the discipline of the covenant of grace? Thus does the Spirit sanctify the soul through the medium of God's afflictive dispensations. Thus they deepen the work of grace in the heart, awaken the soul from its spiritual drowsiness, empty humble and lay it low, thus they lead to prayer, to self-examination, and afresh to the atoning blood. In this way and by these means the believer advances in holiness through sanctification of the Spirit. Again, it is by simple, close, and searching views of the cross of Christ that the Spirit most effectually sanctifies the believer. This is the true and great method of gospel sanctification. Here lies the secret of all real holiness, and, may I not add, of all real happiness. For if we separate happiness from holiness, we separate that which in the covenant of grace God has wisely and indissolubly united. The experience of the true believer must testify to this. We are only happy as we are holy. As the body of sin is daily crucified, as the power of the indwelling principle of sin is weakened, and as the outward deportment more beautifully and closely corresponds to the example of Jesus, let us not then look for a happy walk apart from a holy one. Trials we may have, indeed, if we are the Lord's covenant ones, we shall have them. For he himself has said, In the world ye shall have tribulation. Disappointments we may meet with, broken cisterns, thorny roads, wintry skies, but 
If we are walking in fellowship with God, walking in the light, growing up into Christ in all things, the spirit of adoption dwelling in us and leading us to a filial and unreserved surrender, oh, there is happiness unspeakable even though in the very depth of outward trial. A holy walk is a happy walk. This is God's order. It is His appointment and therefore must be wise and good. The Spirit especially and effectually sanctifies by unfolding the cross of Jesus. We desire to enlarge upon this point not only because He Himself presents it in His Word as one of vast importance, but from the sober conviction of our judgment that there is no great advance in holiness without a growing knowledge of Christ as the sanctification of the believer. A reference to God's Word will place this truth in its proper light, Matthew 1.21. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Not only shall he save them from the guilt and condemnation of sin, but also from the indwelling power or reign of sin, so that sin shall not have dominion over them. We shall presently show more fully how, in his sacerdotal office, he accomplishes this. Again, in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. But the most striking allusion to this important truth is found in the 30th verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Lord Jesus is especially spoken of as made of God the sanctification of his people. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now it is essential to a right perception of the subject that we should know in what points of view Christ is made our sanctification, so that believing in him and receiving him as such, we may grow up into him in all things. In the first place, the atoning work of Christ lays the foundation of sanctification. Jesus opens a way by which God, so to speak, can treat with the soul in the great business of its holiness. Only upon the broad basis of his law honored, his holiness secured, and his justice satisfied can God, in the way of mercy, have communication with the sinner. Here we see the great glory of Jesus as the God-man mediator. His atoning work opens a channel through which God, without compromising a single perfection of his nature, can communicate the saving and sanctifying power of his grace to the soul. The obedience and blood-shedding of our adorable Lord are ever, in the divine word, connected with the sanctification of the church. A few examples will suffice to show this. Speaking of the legal but imperfect sanctification by the sacrifices under the law, the apostle supplies an argument in favor of the superior sanctification by the blood of Christ in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, Romans 6, 3 through 6, the following phrases occur, Planted in the likeness of his death, our old man crucified with him, the body of sin destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. 
Let's also consult the following passages, Romans 5, 9, 1 Peter 3, 18, Colossians 1, 14, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, 1 John 4, 10. Thus does the atoning blood of Jesus lay the foundation of all future degrees of sanctification. The cross of Christ is, so to speak, the starting point of the soul in this glorious career of holiness, and the goal to which it again returns. By it, the body of sin is wounded, and wounded fatally. From it, pardon and peace and holiness flow, and through it, the soul daily rises to God in a holy surrender of itself to his service. Let no man dream of true mortification of sin, of real sanctification of heart, who does not deal constantly, closely, and believingly with the atoning blood of Jesus. The Holy Spirit brings the cross into the soul and lays it upon the heart to be the death of sin. I am crucified with Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, and see how the cross lifted Him above the world and deadened Him to it, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Thus did Paul breathe after and attain unto holiness. The intercession of our Lord Jesus pleads for and secures the sanctification of the believer. In this sense it may be said that he is made of God unto us sanctification, Christian, you may be but imperfectly aware how closely connected is every spiritual grace and blessing that you receive with the advocacy of Jesus at the right hand of God. The Lord increase our faith in this great and sanctifying truth. While yet upon earth, our dear Lord commenced that work of intercession for the sanctification of the church, which he ascended up on high more fully to carry on. This was the burden of his prayer, and it forms, as John Owen observes, the blessed spirit unspring of our holiness. Sanctify them through thy truth. And not only would he leave it, as it were, as a model of the intercession of his exalted priesthood, but for our encouragement he would provide an evidence of its success. To Peter, about to pass through a severe temptation, Jesus says, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Nor did his faith fail. It was sifted, it was severely shaken, it was powerfully tried, but it failed not. Not a particle of the pure gold was lost in the refining, not a grain of the pure wheat in the sifting. And why? Because Jesus had interceded, and his intercession was all-prevailing. Oh, the vast and costly blessings that flow into the soul from the intercession of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Never shall we know the full extent of this until we pass within the veil. We shall then know the secret of our spiritual life, of all our supports, consolations, and victories, why it was that the spark in the ocean was not quite extinguished, why the vessel in the storm and amid the breakers did not quite become a wreck, why when temptations attacked and crosses pressed and afflictions overwhelmed and unbelief prevailed that our faith still did not fail and our little boat was not driven from its moorings and that out of the depths we were enabled to cry thanks be unto God 
who always causeth us to triumph in Christ, the secret will then disclose itself. The intercession of Jesus, our great high priest, is that secret. How sweet and consoling to the believer is this view of our exalted Emmanuel in the hour of bereavement, when confined to his chamber of solitude, or languishing upon his bed of pining sickness, too deeply absorbed in sorrow it may be to give utterance to his anguished spirit in prayer, his bodily frame so weakened by disease and racked by pain as to render the mind unfit for close and connected spiritual thought. Oh, how sweet is then the intercession of Jesus! How sweet to know that in the hour of our soul's extremity, when human sympathy and power are exhausted, Jesus has entered into heaven, now to appear in the presence of God for his suffering child. And when all utterance has failed on earth, when the heart is broken and the lips are sealed, then to look up and see our elder brother, the brother born for our adversity, the exalted high priest waving the golden censer before the throne, while the cloud of his atoning merit goes up before the mercy seat, bearing as it ascends the person, the name, the circumstances, and the wants of the sufferer below, precious gospel that opens to the eye of faith so sweet a prospect as this. When you cannot think of him, afflicted soul, he is thinking of you. When you cannot pray to him, he is praying for you, for he ever liveth to make intercession for us. But our Lord Jesus is the sanctification of the believer in still another and blessed sense. We view him as the head of all mediatorial fullness to his people. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Here is sanctification for the believer who is mourning over the existence and power of indwelling sin, feeling it to be his greatest burden and the cause of his deepest sorrow in the growing discovery of the hidden evil. Each successive view, it may be, deeper and darker than the former. Where are we to look but unto Jesus? Where can we fly but to his cross? Hemmed in on every side by a host of spiritual Philistines, no avenue of escape presenting itself, the eternal spirit leads the soul to a simple view of Jesus opens to him the vast treasury of his grace and the free welcome to all comers. And what does he find in that fullness? All that he wants to pardon sin, to hide deformity, to overcome unbelief and break the power of strong corruption. He finds that there is enough in Christ to make him holy, that in simply taking his sins to Jesus, they are pardoned. In taking his strong infirmities, they are subdued. In taking his wants, they are supplied. In a word, he finds Christ to be his wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. We close this chapter with a few remarks in the way of caution, direction, and encouragement in this great work. 1. Do not mistake the nature of true sanctification. It is an internal and radical work. It has its seat in the heart. A mere external mortification of sinful habits does not come up to the standard of gospel sanctification. True, this is included in real holiness, yet it may exist without a holy heart. 
A man may cut off outward sins and leave the principle of all sin yet remaining in its unsubdued power. We may visit a forest and level a tall tree to the earth, yet if we leave the root deeply embedded in the soil, the vital principle yet remaining in all its vigor, what marvel if in the course of time that root shall again shoot forth and branch out as before? True sanctification is a daily mortification of the root of sin in the heart, the continual destruction of the principle. The word of God bears us out in this, Galatians 5.24, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Romans 6.6, 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Do not rest short of this. Would you be holy as God is holy, and happy as the saints in glory are happy now? Then must you reach after this and rest not until you attain it. Again, we would urge, seek high attainments in holiness. Don't be satisfied with a low measure of grace, with a stunted religion, with just enough Christianity to get you into heaven. Oh, how many are thus content, satisfied to leave the great question of their acceptance to be decided in another world, and not in this, resting upon some slight evidence in itself, faint and equivocal, perhaps a former experience, some impressions or sensations or transient joys long since passed away, and thus you are content to live and thus content to die you should not be satisfied with anything short of a present Christ, received, enjoyed, and lived upon now. Forget the things that are behind. Reach forth unto higher attainments and sanctification. Seek to have the daily witness, daily communion with God. And for your own sake, for the sake of others, and for Christ's sake, give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. Secondly, beware of self-dependence in this work. Remember, the words that Jesus once speaks to his disciples and now speaks to you, without me ye can do nothing. Self-trust, self-complacency, self-boasting, all must be crucified and strong only in the strength that is in Christ Jesus must the believer gird himself to the work our wisdom is to go in our weakness and folly to Jesus. In this lies the great secret of our victory. When I am weak, then am I strong. My grace, saith the Lord, is sufficient for thee. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And do not forget next that the truth of God is the great instrument of sanctification. Sanctify them through thy truth, John 17. Thy word is truth. There is that in the truth of God, which when brought into the soul by the power of the Holy Ghost, always sanctifies. It is holy truth. It unfolds a holy God, reveals a holy law, exhibits a holy sacrifice, and enforces by the most holy motives the sanctity of the most holy precepts. In proportion as the renewed mind is brought into a close and constant contact with God's truth, it grows nearer to its spirit. Let then the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and the spiritual understanding. Be close, diligent, and prayerful students of the word of God. 
Do not separate the doctrine from the precept, nor the precept from the promise. Every part is essential to the sanctification of the believer. To secure this great end, the doctrine, the precept, and the promise must be alike received and brought into active, holy exercise. Next, deal much and closely with the atoning blood of Jesus. There is no victory over the indwelling power of sin, and there is no pardon for the guilt of sin, but as the soul deals with the blood of Christ. The great object of our dear Lord's death was to destroy the works of the devil. Sin is the great work of Satan. To overcome this, to break its power, subdue its dominion, repair its ruins, and release from its condemnation, the blessed Son of God suffered the ignominious death of the cross. All that bitter agony which he endured, all that mental suffering, the sorrow of his soul in the garden, the sufferings of his body on the cross, all was for sin. He gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 He gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it, and that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25-27 See, then, the close and beautiful connection between the death of Christ, the shedding of his blood, and the death of sin. All true sanctification comes through the cross. Seek it there, dear Christian. The cross brought into your soul by the eternal Spirit will be the death of your sins. Go to the cross, so go to the cross of Jesus. In simplicity of faith, go. With the strong corruption, go. With the burden of guilt, go. Go to the cross. You will find nothing but love there, nothing but welcome there, nothing but purity there. The precious blood of Jesus cleanseth from all sin. And while you are kept low beneath the cross, your enemy dares not approach you. Sin shall not have dominion over you, nor shall Satan, your accuser, condemn you. Next, deal much and closely with the fullness of grace that is in Jesus. All this grace in Christ is for the sanctification of the believer. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell for the necessities of his people. And what necessities so great and urgent as those which spring from indwelling sin? Take the corruption, whatever be its nature, directly and simply to Jesus. The very act of taking it to him weakens its power. Indeed, it is halfway to victory. The blessed state of mind, the holy impulse that leads you to your secret place, there to fall prostrate before the Lord in lowliness of spirit, brokenness of heart and humble confession of sin, with the hand of faith on the head of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, is a mighty achievement of the indwelling spirit over the power of indwelling sin. Learn to take the guilt as it comes and the corruption as it rises directly and simply to Jesus. Don't allow the guilt of sin to remain long upon your conscience. The moment there is the slightest consciousness of a wound received, take it to the blood of Christ. 
the moment a mist dims the eye of faith so that you cannot see clearly the smile of your Father's countenance, take it that instant to the blood of atonement. Let there be no distance between God and your soul. Sin separates, but sin immediately confessed, mourned over, and forsaken brings God and the soul together again in sweet, close, and holy fellowship. Oh, the oneness of God and the believer in a sin-pardoning Christ. Who can know it? Only one who has experienced it. To cherish then the abiding sense of this holy Loving oneness, the believer, to use the figure of the tabernacle, must wash daily in the brazen laver that is outside. Then, entering in within the veil, he may draw near the mercy seat and ask what he will of him who dwells between the cherubim. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 19-22 Again, thank God for the smallest victory gained. Praise Him for any evidence that sin has not entire dominion. Every fresh triumph achieved over some strong and besetting weakness is a glorious battle won. No victory that ever flushed the cheek of an Alexander or a Caesar can be compared with his, who in the grace that is in Christ Jesus overcomes a single corruption. If he that ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh a city, then he who masters one corruption of his nature has more real glory than the greatest earthly conqueror that ever lived. Oh, how God is glorified, how Jesus is honored, and how the Spirit is magnified in the slaying of one spiritual enemy at the foot of the cross. Cheer up, precious soul. You've every encouragement to persevere in the great business of sanctification. True, it is a hard fight. True, it is a severe and painful contest. But the victory is yours. The captain of your salvation has fought and conquered for you, and now sits upon his throne of glory, cheering you on and supplying you with all needed strength for the warfare in which you are engaged. Then fight the good fight of faith. Quit you like men. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. For you shall at length overcome through the blood of the Lamb and be more than conquerors through him that hath loved us. Here beneath the cross I would breathe for you the desire and prayer once offered by the apostle of the Gentiles in behalf of the church of the Thessalonians. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and Amen. Chapter 6, The Sealing of the Spirit, The Believer, and Epistle, 2 Corinthians 3, 2, Ye are our epistle, Ephesians 1, 13, In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. What an inestimable gift is God the Holy Ghost, and how vast is His work. Each successive step we take in unfolding it does but more deeply convince us of this. 
New rays of light are reflected, new aspects of importance present themselves, and new features of interest and beauty are brought to view as we pursue our research into this essential and important department of divine truth. The more thoroughly and prayerfully you're led to investigate the operations of the Spirit upon your soul, especially if you watch closely His work in your own heart, the more powerfully will the conviction press itself upon your mind that all real advance in divine knowledge, in righteousness, joy, and peace is inseparably connected with God's indwelling and sanctifying power. In the previous chapter, we endeavored to unfold this. We have seen God as the author and finisher of holiness in the soul, beginning the great work, carrying it forward, strengthening it when feeble, reviving it when drooping, and thus preparing the believer for the inheritance of the saints in light. Closely connected with this part of his work is his sealing operation. As various opinions have been held regarding the nature of the Spirit's sealing, as it has a subject been of a highly spiritual and practical tendency, and to an inquirer after a more perfect knowledge of the truth of much importance, we enter upon the discussion of the subject the more readily, and we trust with earnest prayer for divine assistance in unfolding it. What do we understand by the sealing of the Spirit? What does the Word of God teach upon the subject? There are various passages in which the same figure is employed, but which do not convey the idea we ascribe to his present operation. For example, there is a sealing spoken of in 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. We think it clear that the seal there alluded to has respect to the Father's sealing his people in election with the seal of his foreknowledge, which, of course, is an operation anterior to the existence of faith in the soul, and is within itself, not upon them. It is, so to speak, God's secret designation of his people, known especially and only to himself. The foundation of God standing sure, with the seal the Lord knoweth them that are his. There's also a sealing spoken of in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. It is equally clear that this cannot refer to the work of the Spirit, but must refer to Christ's strong and unchangeable love to his people. They are set as a seal upon his heart, the indwelling place of love, and upon his arm, the instrument of power. Unchangeable love and omnipotent power are pledged to the eternal security of the believer. As a seal set upon his heart and worn upon his arm, they are precious to and valued by our Lord. Nor are we to interpret the sealing under consideration to mean the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, for it is a remarkable fact already alluded to, and it speaks solemnly to those who are forming a higher estimate of gifts than of graces, that the Corinthian church the most distinguished for its possession of the gifts of the Spirit, was at the same time most remarkable for its lack of the sanctifying graces of the Spirit. It was the most gifted, but at the same time the Corinthians were the least holy community gathered and planted by the apostles. The question still recurs, what are we to understand by the sealing of the Spirit? It is that act of the Holy Spirit which the work of grace is deepened in the heart of the believer, so that he has an increasing and abiding conviction 
of his acceptance in Jesus and his adoption into the family of God. The sealing is a clearer and more undoubted manifestation of Christ to the soul, a larger degree of the sanctifying, witnessing, and anointing influences of the Holy Ghost, evidencing itself in a growing holiness of character. Let us not be misunderstood. We are not speaking of some peculiar and sudden impulse on the mind, of some immediate suggestion or revelation to the soul, some vision of the night or voice in the air. Oh, no. We speak of a growth in a knowledge of Christ and sanctification of the heart in holiness of life in an increasing and abiding moral certainty of the believer's calling and election. And by footnote, we would suggest to those afflicted with this or a like infirmity that Jonathan Edwards on the religious affections has been signally honored of the Spirit in exploding sentiments so contrary to the Word of God and so disastrous in their influence upon the mind. The work of Jonathan Edwards, the religious affections, should be read with much prayer and looking unto Jesus. This work is also still in print. The Spirit is both the seal and the sealer, even as Jesus was both the sacrifice and the priest. He deepens the work of grace in the heart. He witnesses to the believer that he is born of God. He seals the soul to the day of redemption, and by his indwelling and anointing influences enables him to say, I know whom I have believed. He hath loved me and given himself for me. With this brief and simple definition of the nature of the sealing of the Spirit, we proceed to unfold the manner in which it is effected. It's sometimes a sudden work of the Spirit. A soul may be so deeply sealed in conversion, may receive such a vivid impression of divine grace, such an enlarged communication of the divine Spirit, as it never afterwards loses. It is sealed unto the day of redemption and that too in the most simple way. In the hearing of a single sermon, the reading of a single chapter of God's Word, some promise brought with the power of the Holy Ghost and sealed upon the heart, in a moment the soul is brought into the full assurance of understanding and of faith. Take, for example, that one precious promise which the Spirit has sealed, never to be erased upon many a poor sinner's softened heart, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Oh, what a sealing is this! God speaking to a poor, distressed, and disconsolate soul, assuring it of a cordial welcome and a free pardon, that though no tongue can express its vileness and poverty, and no imagination conceive its deep sorrow, yet coming to Jesus just as it is, it shall in no wise be cast out. Is not this an impression of the seal in the hands of the great sealer, which is unto the day of redemption? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.sw.org.
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.